the time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the political science department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salome. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we are lucky to have the opportunity to talk to poli-sci alumni Jeremy Kedziora. Professor Kedziora, who teaches a very popular public policy course for the department, graduated from UW-Madison in 2004 with a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and Political Science, and earned a PhD in Political Science from the University of Rochester in 2012. Professor Kedziora also spent 10 years working for the CIA, and he's currently a Director of Data Science and Analytics at Northwestern Mutual. We wanted to talk to Jeremy about his time on campus and his accomplished career trajectory. We'll also talk about his time at the CIA, his approach to teaching his very popular public policy course, and about his current position in the private sector. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're, we're super excited about this conversation. In fact, I'd like to get started with a little bit about your background because you have fascinating dual majors. So what were you thinking as a political science and chemistry major in terms of the job market and, you know, life after college? How do those things work together? Yeah, what I was what I was what I was thinking is going to be very disappointing, right? It wasn't strategic in any sense. So I um, I I came to Madison as a what was at the time a Madison medical scholar. Right. So so I was admitted to the to the UW Madison Medical School, like out of high school, um, assuming that I kept like a certain GPA and stuff like this. And then I realized a little while, and so I picked majors that were like, you know, going to make, make it like a minimal effort to satisfy the requirements to be in med school, chemistry being one of them, right? So I did that for a while, and then I realized I really don't want to be a doctor. I'm, I'm actually like a creative, right, at heart. I love math. I'm also creative. So really, I need to do something that's really heavily research-focused in some way. And so I, uh, and I also liked history. So political science was very definitely a, a second you know, a second, like, I'm going to do this because it's interesting type of thing. So I, I kind of started with med school, did chemistry because of that, kind of stopped wanting to do med school, started wanting to do graduate school of some kind. And then I, uh, I got to like the upper levels of chemistry, like quantum mechanics and, uh, and upper, upper levels of math, like topology and abstract algebra. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not smart enough to go and get a PhD in, uh, in chemistry. Fortunately, I have the second major, right? Political science, right? So I'm probably smart enough for that. So I'll go get a PhD in political science. And this was an uh, incorrect assessment. I think it's actually quite difficult to do, you know, any sort of quantitative work in political science, more difficult in many ways than it is in physical science. But that was the kind of the, um, the, the structure of the decision-making, right? Like professional, no, I'm actually very creative. I want to do something research focused. What am I capable of doing? Right. And that's what led me to like those two majors and ultimately to graduate school. I think that's fun for people to hear because so often we interview professionals who kind of knew the track that they wanted to be on or that didn't dabble in multiple different areas first. You're very you're very blessed in some sense if you know exactly what you want to do like early on. It makes everything easier, right? But I also think, you know, it's good to like explore your preferences. Uh, and the only way to explore your preferences is if you're not certain about what they are. 
Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the professional path you took after undergrad? So we know that eventually you ended up at the CIA, and then you also picked up a PhD in political science from University of Rochester. We'd love to hear how you made your way to the CIA first and foremost. I wish it was as easy as picking up a PhD. <laughs> that makes it sound super easy. <laughs> but no, I went to Rochester because I was a super technical person. I really liked applied math type stuff. And Rochester at the time, Rochester and Caltech were like two places that you wanted to go if you were going to do something that you expected to be focused on applied math type stuff. So I went to Rochester and I knew um, I actually had taken a class with John Peavy House, right, uh, as an undergraduate. He was one of my letter of recommendation writers for grad school, in fact. And um, in that class, I wrote an honors paper that was a game theory paper. Game theory is the applied math of modeling choices. So I knew I really liked that. I knew that was what I wanted to do my research in. Um, and I wanted to go to a school that would let me do that and would like train me to do that. And so that's why I went to Rochester. Um, when I was at Rochester, I did I did uh, research uh, in game theory and in Bayesian statistics and machine learning and stuff like that. And I and I came out kind of really very technical, right? Like I had all these like really applied mathy type skills. And then kind of as a distant third, I also did like some political economy and some international relations, right? So I came out with these really technical skills. I went on the academic job market to be a professor. I had some just awesome job uh, opportunities like at Princeton and University of Chicago and, and places like this. And I kind of realized that I was getting a little bit bored, right, with, uh, with research. And uh, this is another mistaken assessment I'll, I'll, I'll hasten to add, right? But I was getting a little bit bored with research, and so I wanted to do something a little bit more operational. And in addition to that, I was on the academic job market in 2009, which was like the worst time, except for COVID, right, for being on the academic job market, right? It was in the tail end of the Great Recession, full-time equivalent, you know, tenure track lines were being canceled left and right. Like I was, I was rumored to be shortlisted at like, you know, Yale for an interview and they pulled the line, right? So uh, I got a job at UCSD as a professor and then they had to retract the offer because, and not just for me, but for 500 other university employees because uh, the funding situation just went crazy. And so I realized I need a backup. I need a non-academic backup. I'm also getting bored with some of the pathologies of academia. So as a, on a lark, I kind of applied to the CIA, right? And I was like, all right, I'll just send in an application, right? Uh, sure, this, this, will be, this will be fine, right? And like, to my surprise, they got back to me very quickly. And then there's this like multiple stage interview process that you have to go through, right? So they flew me out to uh, Virginia, Northern Virginia, which is where they, you know, they have the agency. And uh, I had the interview process. I did the interview, right? I left. And uh, I think less than 12 hours later, they were, they were like, Jeremy, can we, you know, why don't you call us, you know, on the phone, right? And, and they made me an offer, like, right then and there, right, to come work there. And so the reason for this, I think, was that I had all these technical skills, and the agency was in the process of trying to build up that capacity. They, they had technical people, right? They repurposed them. A lot of them left, so they didn't have the capacity, so they wanted to build it up again. So they, I was one of the kind of early hires in the current wave of that. So... So I got lucky in a lot of ways. So I spent time at the agency and I did a lot of technical stuff at the beginning. I did a lot of like kind of applied mathy type type stuff looks like research. I was in the director of analysis, right? No Jason Bourne for me or anything like that, right? Uh, not like scary in that way or anything. I wrote papers, right? That went down, you know, downtown to US policymakers, right? So it, it, a, lot of, a lot of what you do as a graduate student in political science or you know, even as an undergraduate, would look very familiar or feel very, would very, feel very familiar to be at the agency in the role that I was anyway. Uh, and I got to do all kinds of really interesting things. Um, I got to meet uh, and 
present research to really important people. And then um, it kind of got to be another kind of situation where I was getting bored again, right? Like I had, I'd been to the White House, I don't know how many times on business, right? You know, I'd, I'd been in uh, the Pentagon, right? A bunch of times, met with the Joint Chiefs, this kind of thing. And I was like, well, I've done kind of all that I can do really, and it's time to move on. So a colleague of mine who I'd met when I interviewed at Princeton uh, was involved in a tech startup. And he emailed me kind of out of the blue and said, you know, like we have funding, right? We need to hire some people. And, you know, who should I hire? And I was like, well, I'm kind of bored. So you should hire me. So he, so he did, uh, they did. And I went to work for the private sector, right? Uh, I spent a couple of years at the tech startup full-time. Uh, I hated living in Virginia, hated it. It's too hot for me. Uh, so I wanted to move back to Wisconsin. I was from Wisconsin. My parents still live in Milwaukee. My wife's parents live in Milwaukee. So I was like, well, it's time to, you know, come a little bit closer to home. We've got kids. We want kids to know our grandparents, right? So so we, we came back here. And then Northwestern Mutual, which is, you know, Fortune 100 company located in the area, they, uh, they, had hunted, they had hunted me, basically. They just reached out on LinkedIn and were like, you know, are you interested in coming to work for us? And I was like, sure, I'll give it a shot. So that's the basic kind of like professional path. Uh, I still love the applied math stuff. And if actually, if I like move a little bit and you can like read the books over my shoulder, you like see like there's numerical analysis. I have infinite dimensional analysis right on my floor, right? Modern algebra and topology are right over my shoulder. I love that stuff. It makes me so happy. So, so I've always tried to make sure that I can, I can keep that skill set alive, right? And engage with it like regularly. I have a managerial title now and I manage people, but I also like, uh, I also have the kind of freedom to manage myself a little bit and to give myself, you know, individual contributor applied math work, right? So I've always tried to maintain this because it's really important to me. It's like a fundamental part of my identity. So yeah, that's the, that's the path. That's the professional path. That is all so interesting. And see, my next question would be like, what would your advice be to students looking to pursue something similar? But like in my in my own interest, I've always, like as a communications person, been very into kind of like a similar trajectory you've taken, like going intelligence and then kind of bouncing around the private sector. So maybe what would your advice be, you know, to me if I wanted to pursue even a fraction of the cool things you've done? So I guess a couple couple thoughts would be, first of all, if you are interested in dancing specifically in this like kind of tech world, it's very empowering to be able to uh, be conversant in, in math. It, it's very, very empowering because otherwise you're sort of like at the mercy of people who know more than you. And that's, that's very de-empowering, right? Like, you know, you can't make your own choices about like how to solve problems. You can't make your own choices about how to manage work, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very, it's very, it's very powerful to know a lot, right? And to be conversant in that, in that kind of language. That's one thing I would say. A second thing I would say is like, it's really important and useful to express your ideas to other people, not in that language. You know, being able to like translate, right, from something that's technical, something that's difficult to understand, something that's abstract or, you know, esoteric into, you know, this is how it's going to solve a problem, right? This is how it's going to lead to like actionable decisions, you know, that you can decide, right? You can make, uh, this, is, this is how it's going to, you know, help you, make you better off. Right. Being able to articulate that, I guess the, um, the corporate speak for that would be like the value proposition, which I, I despise corporate speak. But, but if I wanted to say it like in corporate speak, it would be that, be the value proposition. Being able to articulate that is really, really, really important. And, and there, are, there are legions of people way smarter than me, way more able than me, who have a hard time with that. And because of that, it just limits their ability to be valuable, right? Or to translate their, uh, their contributions into things that change outcomes on the ground. So 
these are these are two areas that I drew upon like extensively, right, when I was in government, and and still draw upon extensively even in the private sector. And I remember being in um, one of the uh, Joint Chiefs offices presenting some some work and being able to say like, well, you know, this is based on you know tens of thousands of simulations of this complicated mathematical process, and like, what pushback can you make on that? You know, ultimately, right? So so it's very powerful, right? Uh, but also being able to articulate right what that meant for him, right, was also like, you know, a necessary condition. And, and it's why they asked me to go meet with people like that, because I could do both those things. Ah, there's one more specific thing you should do if you wanted to follow this kind of path, especially with respect to government and the IC. You have to prepare yourself from the beginning to undergo like a very extensive background check, which means that you have to make choices very early on about like illegal substance use and like not doing like too many naughty things, right, and stuff like this long before long before you're actually going to be in a position to put an application in and undergo the background investigation, like 10 years before you have to start making those kinds of choices. So there's a lot of like looking down the uh, decision tree, so to speak, that you want to like start doing very early on. Yeah. So those are three, those are three pieces of advice, right? Uh, cultivate some like technical ability, especially if you, you know, if you want to dance on this like edge of tech kind of place that I did, make sure that you're good at translating it, right? So that you're not speaking in math, you're thinking in math, but not speaking in math. And third, right, uh, make good choices at the beginning, right, uh, in your personal life so that you can like, you know, uh, you can satisfy the background requirements, the background check requirements. That's perfect. I think that kind of answers our next question that we had for you a little bit, at least. You were talking about when you interviewed for the CIA, you thought that one of those like deciding factors at the time was your analytic and mathematical ability. For so many people, I think, especially as poli-sci students, like CIA is the dream. If you go to a party and you tell people you work at the CIA, I don't think it gets much better than that. Is there anything that you would specifically tell students who are really looking for that as their step right out of undergrad? It's actually quite hard uh, to do that right out of undergraduate. You, the, the modal category of educational background right in my part of the CIA was ABD, right? All but dissertation. Um, so these would be like, you know, people who are graduate students, right? Um, and they had done some research and they just hadn't finished because they wanted to get a job. You also had a bunch of master's, uh, master's people, um, but the number of like straight out of undergraduates was pretty small. And, and that was also, I think my sense of it was that it was very competitive. Um, and it started to become progressively less competitive as you climb the educational ladder. So, you know, one thing to think about like is kind of strategically, when do you want you know, to try and pursue this, right? You could, you know, there's nothing stopping you from putting your resume in every few months, right? If you want to, right? I think you increase the probability of success as you kind of go up the educational ladder. Um, I was ABD with uh, basically finished dissertation in hand when I applied. Um, I just hadn't defended it yet. I actually, I ended up like revising substantially one of the chapters, but like fundamentally I had like a whole body of research already done. So, um, so I was at kind of like the top of that ladder, so to speak. And I had a niche set of skills as well that they were looking for. And that's why it happened so easily for me. But yeah, that's what you want to do is you want to think about like when, you know, when in the process do you start moving it forward and be aware that it's, it's going to, your likelihood of getting kind of in is easier as you, as you move forward. That segues kind of into, into our next question. Um, so you had, you've had a bunch of different roles within the CIA. You've bounced around a little bit, but we're curious. What is the reality of working for the CIA versus what we see in popular culture? Yeah, so, you know, and this is now we'll have to start being like careful and like self-censoring, right? So 
So apologies if I pause, because I'm not, I'm definitely not going to like say anything that I shouldn't say. Uh, so the, the agency is, is in some ways no different than any other a corporation. So it's like a big place, lots of people there, lots of different things going on, right? And you, you may not appreciate, you know, as an undergraduate, what it's like to work at a, uh, at a place that has like Google has tens of thousands of employees. So, uh, so there's be all kinds of little fiefdoms, right? Where stuff is happening and fiefdom here over here doesn't really know what's happening in fiefdom over here, right? So that's like, that's like big corporate America. And in, in, in many ways, government agencies are like no different than, than that kind of thing. I'm going to go ahead and like diminish some of the cool factor, right? Um, the other thing is that it's the case that it starts to wear off like pretty quick, right? So like, you know, wow, the first time you write a paper for the president, it's amazing. And I think that's what's in the CIA is like, if you go to CIA.gov, they'll say, come write for the president, right? First time you do that, it's pretty amazing. By the fifth time you do it, it's kind of like, oh, there's a lot of work involved here and some, some inconveniences, right? And I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. Um, so, so the coolness factor wears off pretty quickly. The other thing I would say is that, you know, it, it's a team, right? The agency is a team. And if you look at often like depictions of, of the agency, right, like in popular culture, like if, you, if you've watched Hunt for Red October, right, from back, back in the 90s, right, or if you... If you, um, what, there was a, a TV show not long ago with uh, Catherine Hegel uh, that I'm now forgetting the name. Anybody might have been the book or something like this. These these like depictions often give the impression that there's like one person, like there's one person who's doing like 10 million different kinds of jobs, and they're like absolutely crucial. That's not really what it's like. It's very much like a team, and people like specialize, right? Like any again, like any other big big entity, right? People are going to specialize, right? And like so, me. I was a specialist in game theory and uh, statistical analysis and things like this. So that's the kind of work that I did. I wasn't like going out and doing some kind of like covert ops stuff, which I have no idea about that world at all anyway. Whereas in popular culture, they often give you the impression that like one person is going out and doing that kind of stuff, but then also like going to brief the president, right? And also like making operational calls on uh, where should a drone strike happen or what, whatever, right? It's, that's just like, that would drive someone absolutely crazy. So that's the, that's the thing I would say is like, you know, it's, it's not as cool as it sounds. It's, it's a lot like being at any other big entity and there's a lot of specialization, right? So, you know, so popular depictions often kind of conflate many roles into one uh, in a way that's not really very accurate. I think you often get in popular culture, like one of two depictions of the agency too. You get like, you know, these are bumbling incompetent clowns, right? That's one depiction. Depiction number two is these are the architects uh, of the new world order that secretly governs the entire world, right? Um, and and neither of those two things is really true, right? What you really have is just a group of motivated, smart people who want to do the best that they can uh, and solve and solve problems, right? And help U.S. policymakers make good decisions. Okay, we have one more potentially annoying question for you about CIA time before we move on to some more relevant things, but we have to ask. There's this line on your CV that says your security clearance there was top secret slash SCI with full scope polygraph. We need to know what does that mean? And do you know things that still keep you up at night? So I'll give you the Wikipedia level, right, version of that, right? So that, so that like this information that I'll say is like, you know, you guys said you can like, you know, Google this and find this out. So, so the government, government secrecy, right, is like in levels. So there's like confidential, secret, top secret, right? So uh, different kinds of information are filtered in different levels, right? 
So top secret is like the highest level there, right? Where, uh, where if like you expose things that are in the top secret bin, right, it would cause like grave damage to national security, I think is the, is the terminology that you can find on like Wikipedia. So that's the top, that's the top secret part. It refers to kind of the hierarchy of information. The SCI part is sensitive compartmented information. And again, this is something you can totally find on, uh, on open source uh, sources. So the idea there is, um, is that within a given like level of secrecy, you wanna like have like rooms that are hived off from each other. So that just because someone has a secret clearance doesn't mean they know everything in the secret category, right? Because they just don't need to know everything in the secret category. And why should they have access to something over here that don't actually need to do their job all that would happen if you did that is that the spies of the world, right, the Eldritch Ames uh, types, right, would be able to do more damage, basically. Um, this is the philosophy behind it. So the SCI part is like, I was allowed into some of those rooms, basically, if it was necessary for my job. The full scope background investigation and polygraph, that's just the kind of the level of scrutiny that you get, right, to end up in in that level of security clearance, right, with okay to access some of those secret, you know, secret rooms. And uh, yeah, I can tell you that it's actually quite a burden, right, to have that level of clearance, right, because you, you really want to do right. You really don't ever want to uh, expose information you shouldn't expose. And so you're always kind of like watching yourself to make sure you don't say something to the wrong person who's not actually cleared. Uh, like, if you're giving a briefing in Congress, right, uh, this is not something I had to do. But if you're giving a briefing in Congress, you might have to be like, Hey, does, every, does everybody have access to X, Y, and Z, right? If you don't, could you please leave? So, you know, you'd always have to be like, like watching, right? To make sure that you were like a good steward. And, you know, I, uh, I, I find that very difficult, right? Because I didn't, I didn't really want to have to do that, right? I didn't want to have to have responsibility for doing that. Because the truth is not, I don't have any experience with this, but like, you know, in the historical record, people get killed over top secret stuff, right? You know, and I, I didn't want to be like, you know, responsible for, for someone uh, in that way. So I found it to be quite a, quite a burden. And I actually tried to avoid having access to secret information, right, to the best of my ability. I wanted to do my like applied math stuff, which pretty low level, right, in terms of like secrecy, right? It was like proprietary information, right? The same way that if you build something at Google, it would be proprietary. Um, so I tried to avoid like having access to secret information because I didn't really need it for my job. And I didn't really want to have the burden of, uh, you know, of, of, of having to protect it. Um, in terms of like things that keep, keep you up at night, I do think that the agency does have responsibility for studying and researching some pretty terrible things. And I, I didn't have to do very much of that. So I avoided most of those kinds of like things. I did have colleagues, right, who, you know, would be working on something and they just get burned out and they'd be like, it's too much. I just got to, you know, I've got to do something else. Like imagine, imagine if you're an analyst studying the Holocaust as it's unfolding. What, what that would do to you, right? If you, if you watched it day by day and understood exactly what was happening, right? It's things like that, right? And so like, those are the kinds of things I think bother people kind of after, after the fact. Yeah, and I, obviously I can't go into any more specifics and won't go into any more specifics than that, but that's, that's the basic lay of the land there, right? It, it, uh, yeah, people get burned out. Yeah, I can't imagine. I already love talking, but that sounds very stressful. Yeah. It could be, right? It could be. And, and actually, like now I'm, I'm sort of very happy. I, my SCI is gone. I don't have that anymore because I left right government. The security clearance, the top secret security clearance, they often leave like open for a while in case you come back, right? Um, they like put it in kind of reserve, so to speak. But I think now I'm, I'm sufficiently far out where that, that's probably turned off too. And I'm just, I'm glad kind of to be done with it. It's a, it's a burden, right? You know, and, and with great power comes great responsibility, right? And so it's, it's, it's nice to be relieved of some of that burden.
but there's like definitely a brain laser that they shoot at you that takes away part of your memory, right? Oh, no, I'm afraid not. Uh, oh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm exposing secret stuff there. No, I don't know. There's no man in black, like little, like, you know, thing where they flash in your eyes and it like wipes your memory. Uh, at least as far as I know, maybe. Okay. Well, we'll pivot from the CIA talk for now. We'll, we'll give you a break, but you know, you guest lectured at Georgetown in 2020 on the science of security. We would love to know what is the science of security and what should everyday citizens know about the science of security in our uncertain international sphere? So that that class was a class put on by some colleagues of mine who were, uh, you know, they were in the private sector and they had like all kinds of like kind of technical technical skills, uh, you know, sort of sort of like I do. And right. Georgetown has a very well regarded security studies master's program. So this is a place where people who are, you know, government employees or potentially future government employees go and they get a master's degree in some of the practical applied topics that they might have to deal with. So you, you could imagine like somebody going to work for the FBI or the agency or the diplomatic security service or somewhere in the Pentagon, right? That would be the kind of, you know, person who's kind of filtering through here. And maybe these people would, you know, want to be like, uh, DASDs someday, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, you know, type individuals, right? Or they might be like managers at um, at some IC at some IC agency. The crowd there is very qualitative, right? Uh, these are a lot of these are going to be like your kind of political science undergraduates who are you know who are coming up in in the world and they want to like you know get a good solid education to bolster their their future career path, right? At whatever federal agency they end up at. So the science of security. So that's the context, right? That's the audience, right? That were that that the class was aimed at. So the science of security was an attempt to introduce them to the fact that there are some very rigorous, you know, quantitative methods that are applied to study some of these kinds of questions. You know, why why do why does conflict happen, right? What is the you know what is the uh, effect of economic development on terrorism, right? These these kinds of questions. What what accounts for successful insurgencies? these kinds of questions, right? So I would attempt to introduce them to the fact that like there are, there are rigorous quantitative ways to address these kinds of questions, but it was, it was also trying to walk this tightrope where we don't want to like really hit them too hard with this is how, you know, this model works, right? Because that's really not helpful for them in the long term. The goal is to make them intelligent consumers of that kind of work. So kind of rigorous scientific research on, on these kind of social science, you know, defense related questions. Right. So this is the nature of the science of security. So what I actually lectured on, what I actually talked about was I explained to them how to use uh, a particular statistical method called logistic regression. And so the, the method of logistic regression is to model like if something happens or does not happen, right? Like a binary, like yes or no. And it's very widely applied. And the reason why we wanted to teach them about it was because things like, is there a successful insurgency? you can think about in this kind of binary sense. And so you might want a model that lets you like handle that kind of binary case, right? Uh, did, will conflict break out or not? Will instability happen or not? Will there be a coup or not, right? These kinds of questions. I spent some time kind of like soft introducing them into, into this uh, statistical model. I think what, what would I want people to know about the science of security? I think the, the kind of the thousand foot thing to take away from my perspective, at least from this, is that you know, and this is not a, a necessarily a conclusion from the class, right? But it's more a, a general process conclusion, which is that the U.S. government tries to be as uh, as rational, right? Uh, I don't know if you heard the air quotes around that, but as rational as possible, right? When it comes to these kinds of things, right? So they're trying to 
you know, make optimal decisions, right? Uh, they're trying to do the best that they can. And what that means is having to grapple with, uh, you know, the academic community's findings and research on something, be able to understand this, be able to incorporate it and bring it into decision-making. Uh, and that's why there's like some value and demand for something that's like the science of security, right? So that like eventually your kind of low level political appointees like your deputy, deputy assistant secretaries of defense are conversant in this language. They can like look at an academic paper and say like, okay, you know, yes, I understand this, this statistical analysis, right? And it leads me to make this kind of decision. That's the point of it, right? Is to, is to really kind of bolster the attempts by the US government to be rational, to solve optimization problems and to get the right answer. Awesome. We'd love to also ask you about the course that you're now teaching at UW, which is your very popular public policy course. And we'd love to hear what your philosophy for teaching that class is. And do you cover some of those same ideas from the science of security or is there a very separate goal? Similar goals, very different methods, uh, very different method, methodological approaches to get there. Um, so the, the class is, uh, is unique. Um, it's, it's at least I, you know, it's been a long time since I was an undergraduate at Madison. When I was an undergraduate, I took lots of political science classes and, and those political science classes largely, largely grappled with the academic literature on something, um, kind of like soft introduction to like, you know, this is the, the kind of some of the research that's been done, you know, and you'd introduce students through textbooks. And then maybe later on, you know, you might read a few papers or this kind of thing. Um, but it would all be focused on academic contributions and trying to bounce those contributions off each other and draw conclusions about, you know, kind of what was right and what was wrong. At least that was my, that was my experience. Um, you know, like a typical essay question, right, that I, I remember from my undergraduate in, you know, comparative politics 104 was uh, like, is Russia a democracy, right? Uh, that might be, that might be a typical kind of question. So, th so this class is different, right, in the sense that we spend a lot of time doing something very practical, right, which is, which is helping students to understand, like, here's the policymaking process in its theoretical form, but now we need to take that insight and I'm, I'm, we're going to force you to practice doing it, meaning we're going to force you to actually write a policy memo as you would might find it in government, advocate for a particular choice, right, advocate for a particular recommendation to solve a problem. So, so the course is like divided into these two parts, right? That don't always kind of sit nicely with each other, right? One is this like practical side where you have to write three policy memos addressing specific problems. And the other is this theoretical side, like what is the scholarly literature on policymaking? Like, what does it say about the things that are important that structure policymaking that help, you know, policymakers, you know, make decisions, right? And that maybe are artifacts that uh, change the way that they act, right, in a way that's maybe suboptimal or, you know, and maybe in, con in contrary to the public good in some way. And so the trick in some sense is, is getting those two things to, like, talk to each other, getting those two parts of the class to talk to each other. Uh, so the core of the class is really structured around these three memos. And this semester, what we're talking about is, is water policy. So that, that's a strategic choice, right, to do something like water policy as opposed to something like, you know, international climate change initiatives, right? Because Water policy is something you can deal with at many different levels of government, whereas, you know, international treaties, right, you're kind of legally prohibited from dealing with at any level below the federal level. Um, so, uh, so that means that with water policy, we can say, all right, what would the Dane County executive do to solve this problem? What would the Wisconsin DNR do to solve this problem? 
right? What would Tony Evers do to solve this problem, right? We can we can address these kinds of things at multiple levels, right? And get some sense of, you know, of the different kind of decisions that would be made by the different actors involved because of their different authorities and powers, right? So it's a vehicle to explore some of the details about about how actors are constrained by their environment and by their institutionally granted authorities. And it's also a vehicle to, to practice like advocacy. So these memos are structured. They have a kind of rigorous, rigorous structure to them. And I've said, you cannot depart from this structure. There is no creativity allowed involved in, uh, in, in how you like choose what your first section is going to be, what your second section is going to be. So some of the key things that, you know, that, uh, that the students need to do is they need to be good at or get get better at get good at articulating a problem that they want to solve right in a policy memo right and that's really very 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 useful life skill right to scope down a problem into something concrete explicit constrained right and small enough to grapple with i can't tell you how many times i've seen in the private sector like ill-defined initiatives that don't have good scope just utterly fail and go awry because they don't have good scope. So some practice right in these memos with scoping a problem, right? That's that's one of the first parts of it. Second part is establishing evaluation criteria, right? So if you want to claim, I'll go back to the example I had before, right? Is Russia a democracy, right? If you want to be able to make claims about whether or not Russia is democracy, you have to have some understanding about what a democracy is. You have to establish these are the three criteria, say, that a democracy must satisfy. And then you can rack and stack Russia against those things. So it's the same with, with policy advocacy or policymaking. You have three policy options. You need to have some evaluation criteria against which you can judge those policy options to make a decision about which is the right one. And this is actually like a surprisingly hard thing. If you've never done it before, it's a surprisingly hard thing to grasp the need for. Um, so that's the second key part of these, of these memos. And the third key part is like uh, something I've already kind of mentioned, right, which is understanding your audience. So if you're writing for the Dane County Executive, it's a very different proposition from writing for a member of the majority right in Congress, which might be a very different proposition from writing for, you know, the head of a department at, you know, the EPA. All three of those entities are going to have different purviews, different levels at which they engage with a problem, different tools at their disposal. And so understanding the audience, right, is really key because you, really, you don't want to recommend Mr. Joseph Parisi, Dane County Executive, you know, in order to solve water policy you need to make an international treaty, right, that regulates, right, the shipping industry. It's not going to happen, right? So no point in proposing it. So that, so that, that's, that's like half of the practical half of the course. And then the other half of the course is this theoretical half where we want to take scholarly literature or textbook, you know, versions of that, right, that are approachable uh, and distill understanding of how policymaking works as a process. And then the idea would be to mesh those two things together. And so the first, first memo, right, I just want the students to focus on mastering the structure of the memo, which is, is, not, is a non-trivial task. The second two memos, I also asked them to like talk about like, what is the value, what are, what are valuable insights that you gain from like the readings, right, et cetera, in, in terms of how policymaking works. That's the kind of the, the large scale set of things, right, that we do in the, in the class. I tend to be trusting and flexible I try to meet, I try to meet students where they are, right? I try, I try to work with them and meet them where they are, right? So if, if there's like some kind of like scheduling conflict, kind of you can negotiate, right? Well, can we move this assignment, right? I'm happy to do those kinds of things. I've cut readings that I felt were unnecessary or too long, right? That I inherited from my predecessor, right? Kind of very ruthlessly. I also always want to focus on pragmatic stuff, right? So one of the key things for me is like, you know, one of the tenured faculty members, right? Or tenured track tech faculty members, right? Is valuable for their, for their research as well as their teaching. 
I'm not valuable for my research, not, not at UW-Madison, right? So, so I really focus in on the importance of my interaction with the students, giving them value. You know, they're paying to be here, right? They're, they're in this class because many of them have ambitions and goals to do this for a living someday. So I really want them to get like value out of that, like real deal value, um, which is not to say that any of the other faculty members at Madison don't want to do that. It's just my sole purpose uh, in a way that, it, you know, that they're, they have more kind of divided attention, perhaps. And that's why faculty members are really busy people. So philosophically, right, I always want to make sure that the things I'm doing, right, are going to like hit that value. And yeah, I mean, that's, those are some of the things. I'm not sure that I have a, a coherent teaching philosophy beyond like that continual need to, to provide value, right, in whatever form that I can, right? And that sort of informs some of the other things like the pragmatic, uh, the pragmatic focus on actually doing this kind of work for real, the desire to meet them where they are, right, uh, and make the course work for them, that kind, of, that kind of stuff. Sounds like good enough values to me. They sound like great values. Yeah, and again, right, I don't want to, like, give the impression that, like, other professors wouldn't have those. Like I said, I'm very keenly aware of them because it's my sole focus. Definitely. So earlier you already recommended that, you know, students that are interested in, like, this kind of line of work get informed on, you know, their numbers, how to interpret, like, data, all, all of that, be able to interpret that into regular speak. But are there any hard skills you would recommend that LNS majors might consider working on? If they're going to consider this kind of career after college? Statistics. Statistics? Yeah. Yeah. Full stop. Statistics. Absolutely statistics. That's a very powerful way of making inferences about the world. Whether or not you have data, it's a powerful way of thinking about the relationships between variables. And I, and I can't tell you how many students right in that science of security classes, classes that I taught, they, they would come up to us afterwards and be like, wow, you know, I wish I would have known this kind of thing like five years ago. This is like just an incredibly parsimonious and effective way to think about some of these problems. And, you know, I think honest folks can disagree about the value of quantitative methods, you know, in social science. That's totally reasonable. But there is a power in just shaping your thinking, right, to think about things in terms of independent and dependent variables uh, and the relationships between those things. What I'm hearing is that there's no real escaping math, that you can either be a STEM major or you can be a social science major, but you're still going to have to do the math. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can, you can position yourself to be an intelligent consumer, which is very different than being a stats major. And that's, that's cool, right? That'll work. Having some ability to engage with that, I think, is absolutely absolutely a very valuable tool. Point is not to make people who look like me for like ideological purposes. It's just, I know that it's, it's, it's empowered me, right? And so like, you know, having that kind of empowerment shared with more people is I think a good thing. Okay. Well then as we're coming to a close, we're, we're going to end on a light note, a funny question. It's been a long and at times stressful couple of years. So, you know, we like to do this. You were an undergrad here in the early 2000s. For you, what has changed around campus and maybe what's changed with the students? Yeah, so I was, I was an undergraduate. I graduated in 2004. I was an undergrad here in the early 2000s. And I took the liberty, right? When I came to like first day of class, I came to get my parking pass. And I like, I took the liberty because I had some time of like driving around campus a little bit, you know, to the extent that you're able to drive around campus. And uh, I was like, kind of like really quite shocked, right? At some of the, some of the changes, right? Because I haven't been, I hadn't been to Madison prior to, to coming to campus this year since 2013, I think. And then I hadn't, before that, I hadn't been to campus since like 2004. So it was really like disconcerting, right? Like Og is gone, for example. You know, the bridge from Witty to the like place where you eat is gone, 
and and that's not the only. I think there was also a bridge between the humanities building and the communications building. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's gone too. The kind of the food place for residents of Woody and Celery, right? Totally different. Totally different. And uh, I think the biggest thing that I noticed was across the street, right across the street from the Woody Celery area, when I was an undergraduate, was this kind of like you know one story area that you could kind of walk through it had open courtyard right and there was just kind of like some uh some offices and like small uh small offices and stuff in there and like now there's a high rise so like that's very it's very disconcerting to me you know all these all these changes which i suppose you know it should be unex- un- unsurprising right but like you leave somewhere and often you're like think of it in, in a timeless way this is not this is not changed right it's going to be exactly the same as it was when i was when i was there and it was totally like it was very eye-opening to see such uh, such differences i mean many things are the same like Bascom Hill is totally the same, right? You know, Granger Hall is the same, right? Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff is different in a very strange, <laughs> very strange way. That's fine though. In terms of like the undergraduates, I, I don't know. This is like hard. This is hard for me. I feel like this kind of distribution of students is pretty similar to what I was like when I to what it was like when I was there. That there's kind of similar, you know, within any class, right? There'll be a distribution of interest, right? Some people will be really into whatever you're talking about. Some people will be there to like check the box on their way to law school, and that's that's fine. I want to provide value for both of those groups, right? I think that's pretty pretty much the same as what I remember. Um, that both those groups exist. The proportions are pretty similar. I think uh, I've been really impressed. The last time I, I did the class, I was really impressed with like the. Um, the students' willingness to do to do research, right? Because the memos require lots of research, these policy memos. I was really quite impressed with the things that they found. And the places where they needed to work were like the kind of the cognitive, like how do you make inferences? How do you make arguments, right? What, what is critical thinking, right? And that's what you're supposed to be doing as an undergraduate. You're supposed to be building those kinds of tools. And so like that kind of, you know, working hard, right? Uh, willingness to work hard in the middle of developing kind of some of the critical thinking tools, that's pretty much the same too, from what I remember. Yeah, so I, I think the students are are quite similar. I, I'm not on campus enough to know, nor will I ever be enough to know, like if the work hard, party hard culture is still uh, pervasive, right? I, I remember very distinctly like the Madison Halloween celebration with 50,000 people on State Street. I guess maybe it's COVID time, so maybe that's not going to happen. But, uh, you know, I don't know enough to know if that stuff's still the same. But uh, yeah, I mean, in, in many ways, the buildings have changed, but the students seem very similar. Well, I think that wraps it up. Um, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for being with us, Professor. And, you know, we would love to have you back in the future. Yep, it was my pleasure. Sounds good. For more information, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.